0: Welcome to my podcast, Man Made. It's admittedly a provocative title. It's meant to be. It captures my desire to be of service, to be a part of the movement, encouraging us all to hold men and boys in high esteem. In high esteem for who they are and for the important and different contributions that they make. And in each episode, I feature a good guy of the week. And because I loved going to football matches as a young woman, I always start with, here we go, here we go, here we go. (laughs) And the title of this episode is, Why Has Masculinity Become a Dirty Word? This week's episode is based on an article that Douglas Murray wrote a couple of years ago. It was posted on a website named Unheard, This is a play on the word unheard, meaning not listened to, but spelled U-N-H-E-R-D. The term "herd" is controversially applied to human beings in social psychology by the use of such concepts as herd behaviour and crowd psychology. These concepts explain how groups can align with and be uncritical of for example in the case of this article, popular ideas about masculinity that have been disseminated by academia and the media. In their mission statement, the online publisher Unheard says that they wish to push back against the herd mentality with new and bold thinking and to provide a platform for otherwise unheard ideas, people and places. In my own words, Unheard welcomes writing from the left and the right of politics and appear to be encouraging critical thinking. In his article entitled Why Has Masculinity Become a Dirty Word, the link for which is in the episode notes, Murray explores why in the current zeitgeist, meaning the current collective attitude or outlook of people or a culture at this point in time, the impression is being given that male characteristics are only ever bad. Murray begins his piece by asking us to imagine a scenario where it's decided that there are aspects of female behaviour that are deeply troubling. Indeed, so troubling that a phrase enters the language, first on university campuses and then across wider society. That phrase is toxic femininity. He tells us that even those who recognise it as an ugly phrase also came to recognise that it would be unwise to deny its existence. Eventually, a new generation begins to take the existence of toxic femininity for granted. Imagine next that a number of other things happen. The American Psychological Association, the APA, issues new guidelines to all of its practitioners. Guidelines about how to deal with women and girls in their practice. The new guideline outlines particular harmful aspects of femininity that need to be challenged, suppressed or removed. These include, Murray says, very basic feminine traits which some women have in abundance and others do not have at all. Traits such as caring, cooperation and motherliness. Despite the fact that these are probably ineradicable, the APA has nevertheless identified them as needing to be expunged from the female of the species. Next, a feminine hygiene product company starts a new advertising campaign aimed at those who use its products. Weirdly, Its message seems strangely hostile to its target audience. The advert shows them at their absolute worst. For example, the advert presents women who will use their sexuality to get their own way or who will go to any lengths to get pregnant. These behaviours are obviously not representative of women as a whole and yet this is how the advertisers are portraying all the women in their advert. Murray asks us to consider, how would women feel about this? Would there not be a degree of anger as well as confusion? As a psychotherapist, I might expect a rage response. My understanding of rage is that it's a whole load of different feelings trying to come out at once, involving shock, anger, fear, sadness and hurt. And I agree with Murray about a confusion response but would couch it in terms of disbelief, being lost for words, speechless. This exact scenario happened in reverse. As I've touched on in another episode, the APA issued guidelines for working with men and boys. An article is quoted, there's a link in the episode notes, claiming that 40 years of research showed that traditional masculinity, marked by stoicism, competitiveness, dominance and aggression, is undermining men's well-being. The APA had produced these new guidelines in order to help practitioners recognise this problem for boys and men and tackle these traditional aspects of masculinity. The APA guidelines defined traditional masculinity as a particular constellation of standards that have held sway over large segments of the population including anti-femininity achievement a shuwl of the appearance of weakness and adventure risk and violence Murray says that the APA gave very little idea of how, in practice, these men and boys' problems would be resolved. He wonders, for instance, if competitiveness is indeed an especially male trait, as the APA suggests, then when is such competitiveness toxic and harmful, and when is it useful? Might a male athlete be allowed to use their competitive instincts on the racetrack? If so, how can he be helped to ensure that off the track, he's as docile as possible. Might a man facing inoperable cancer with stoicism be helped out of this harmful position so as to be less stoical? If adventure and risk are indeed male traits, then when and where should men be encouraged to drop them? Should a male explorer be encouraged to be less adventurous? A male firefighter be trained to take fewer risks? Or male soldiers be encouraged to be less connected to violence and be more keen to show weakness? If so, when? By what mechanism should male soldiers be reprogrammed to use their useful traits and skills when society badly needs them, but have them squeezed out when society deems them problematic? For its part, Gillette chose to launch its new advertising campaign, not with the statement, The Best a Man Can Get, as used to be their strapline, but rather along the lines of The Best Men Can Be. Having named their advert The Best Men Can Be, strangely though, it focused on every negative male trait, featuring young boys fighting, bullying, a man in the boardroom speaking for a woman, and the problem of women receiving unwarranted male attention. These traits were presented as specific to men and traits which all men are at risk of falling victim to. In short, Murray tells us Gillette chose to show men at their worst and then suggest that by using Gillette, with its new ethical and moral code, men could all make themselves better. There's been fallout because of the Gillette advert and the new APA guidance. Both of these endeavours point to one of the biggest culture wars of our era, Murray says. The usefulness, or otherwise, of certain masculine traits. No one could deny that the traits that the APA lists, as especially male, adventure, risk, violence, can be exercised negatively. Murray gives an example of violence as a negative trait, hitting someone in the street who they think is looking at them oddly and an example of violence as a positive trait, on the rugby pitch or in a war zone. He argues that there are plenty of occasions where violence can be harnessed for the good of everybody. Likewise, characteristics more often listed as feminine, those of empathy and sensitivity, can be used for good, although not much talked about can also have less favourable effects. Paul Bloom, in his book Against Empathy, The Case for Rational Compassion, shows that empathy can have enormously negative consequences. My own personal and practice experience tells me that too much caring for others can indicate that self-esteem is dependent on being needed. Oftentimes it can result in self-neglect and may result in doing for others what they could do or should do for themselves, encouraging dependency rather than autonomy. Murray concludes that if the APA and Gillette were merely stressing the importance of reining in the worst aspects of people, perhaps that wouldn't be a bad thing. He does, though, query why a vast multinational corporation should be among those doing the lecturing. However, he says, the impression being projected is something else. It's not that certain masculine traits can, like all traits, be taken to extremes and go bad. It's that the traits themselves are wrong and that the people who hold them must, as a result, either reprogram themselves or be reprogrammed by others. His final words are, and I agree, this is a pitch to feminise men. Which is as bizarre as a campaign to make women more masculine. This sort of thing, he comments, may be interesting to a postmodern cultural studies professor, but for many men, especially young men trying to find their way in the world, it's a message that is flooring in a world that's already complex enough to navigate. And now it's time for Good Guy of the Week. Drumroll, please. My Good Guy of the Week this week is a 109-year-old Alfie Date, Australia's oldest man. Alfie makes tiny clothes in his spare time. He knits sweaters for penguins. He began knitting in 1932 when his sister-in-law taught him how to knit a jumper for his newborn nephew. So he's been knitting almost 90 years. In 2013, Alfie loaned his talent to knit for the Phillip Island penguins, affected by an oil spill. In March last year, another oil spill caused Phillip Island's Penguin Foundation once again to put out a call for keen knitters to create little jumpers to help prevent penguins from swallowing the oil when they attempted to clean themselves. Alfie told a reporter... The penguins can be poisoned if they try to clean the oil off their feathers. And once again, he's putting his generous and still nimble fingers to good use. This most recent call was put out on the same day that Alfie had arrived at his new retirement home in Umina on the central coast of New South Wales. I think I'd been in here about 12 hours, he said. Might have been 13. The two girls by that he meant nurses, came in to me and said, we believe you can knit. The 109 year old quickly went to work, joining in with hundreds of people from all over the world who answered the plea for jumpers for the tiny penguins. Despite his age, Alfie said that he always makes sure his jumpers are up to scratch. I like to make them without mistakes. No excuses. Alfie's nephew, who was the first beneficiary of Alfie's knitting skills, is now a grandfather himself, and the 109-year-old is the proud grandfather of 20, and great-grandfather of roughly the same, he said, although he suspects there might be more. Little penguins are only found in New Zealand and southern Australia, and there's a colony of 32,000 who live on Philip Island. The Philip Island Penguin Foundation officially labelled Alfie Most Senior Little Penguin Jumper Knitter, but weren't aware when he started contributing that he was also the oldest person in Australia. Danine Jones, spokesperson for the foundation, said, We're very privileged to have Alfie aiding our efforts. What a fab man Alfie is, and I've included a link to his interview, because if you haven't seen them already, You must have a look at the tiny penguins in their all the colours of the rainbow knitted sweaters. Applause, please. Thank you, that man. Thank you. Thank you. Until next week, practice gratitude and compassion towards everyone and take care of everyone including our men and boy folk.